We are still in Malachi, working our way through for our Advent series uh, of Faithfully Waiting. Um, so please turn to Malachi chapter 3, and this morning we're in verses 6 through 12 of chapter 3. That is page number 1,490 in your pew Bibles. Again, that's Malachi chapter 3, looking at verses 6 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we began our study a few weeks back uh, with the topic of hope. We're, we're following the Advent themes through the book of Malachi. And in that sermon, we saw that, that we can have hope because God loves us, and God has chosen us, and God has promised uh, that we will get to see Him glorify Himself. And then two weeks ago, we saw that we have peace with God uh, through the work of Jesus Christ because He is the ultimate sacrifice. And he is the ultimate high priest who represents us before God. And then last week we saw that the joy that comes from hoping in God and having peace with God leads to a life of walking with God in faith because we are new creations, because we belong to him. And because he has promised to purify us and to refine us so that our life will be an acceptable offering to him. And so today we're looking at the topic of love. And the question we're going to ask this morning is, how does God's love transform us? How does being loved by God actually transform us so that we can live holy lives? So here's how we're going to answer that question this morning. First, we're going to establish a biblical definition of love. So if we're going to talk about how God loves us, it's very important that we're all on the same page about what it means for God to love us. Then after we establish that, we're going to jump into the passage, and we're going to look at the assurance of God's love, or the assurance God's love gives, uh, and then the repentance God's love demands, 
And finally, the blessing God's love offers. So first and very quickly, uh, this is how the Bible defines love, okay? Love is an act of the will where we choose to do good for the one we love. Let me say that one more time. Love is an act of the will where we choose to do good for the one we love. Now notice what's missing from that definition. There's nothing about warm, fuzzy feelings. There's nothing in there about an emotional connection with anyone. And that's because those things are not love. Many times, love produces those things, but many times it doesn't. Because our feelings come and go, but true love is steadfast. And true love is faithful. Listen to how the Apostle Paul defines love in the famous love passage from 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Did you hear that? Love is patient, right? What is patience other than a choice to be patient with the one that we love for their good. Kindness is an act of the will where we choose to be kind to someone whom we love for their good. Love is a choice to do good for the one we love. The only time Paul mentions feelings or emotions in here is when he is talking about sinful feelings that love refuses to give into, like anger and pride and envy. Or positive feelings that we choose to have regardless of what the other person does, like hope and joy and perseverance. Because love is an act of the will where we choose to do good for the one we love. And this is how God loves his people. This is why it's so important to know that this is what love is, because this is how we see God loving us. Jesus was not sitting in the Garden of Eden, or sorry, the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood and pleading with the Father that there would be another way because he had all kinds of warm, fuzzy feelings for us. He, he was there as an act of the will, choosing to do good for the ones that he loves. And so when God opens the book of Malachi, declaring to his people that he has chosen them and that he's always loved them. He's not saying, I love the way you guys make me feel. He's not saying, oh, I love the idea of how you fit into my life, right? That's our culture's definition of love, and it's just so thin. No, he's saying, I've always desired good for you. I've always wanted to see you grow and flourish no matter the cost to myself. 
I've always chosen to do what is ultimately good for you. So if this is how God loves us, if God's disposition towards us is always this one where he is constantly choosing to do good to us, how can we know that he will always continue to love us like this? And the answer to that question is because he promised to love his people like this and he never changes. Our passage opens this way. God says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. So we're told two very important things here. First, God does not change. And second, since God does not change, we are not destroyed. And the implication there is we deserve to be destroyed, but something about God's changelessness is preventing him from destroying us. And we know that because the very next verse, Malachi says, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So here's the situation. God's people have turned away from him. They've not kept his commandments. Ever since the time of their ancestors, all the way up until the present moment. Yet here they are. They should have been destroyed by this point, but they haven't been. And the reason we're given for why is because God doesn't change. Remember God's declaration at the very beginning of the book of Malachi. I have always loved you. I have chosen you. And since God has set his love on us, and since God has chosen us, and since God cannot change, that means there is nothing we can do to cause him to remove his love from us. Think about it. If God loves us, and God has chosen us to belong to him, in order for him to stop loving us, in order for him to reverse his choice of us, that would require something within him to change. Therefore, if God does love us, if he has chosen us, then there's nothing that could ever happen. There's nothing that we could ever do to cause him to remove his love from us or his choice of us. Now, I know that, that when we say this, Sometimes we want to ask the question, well, how do I know he loves me? Or, or how do I know he's chosen me? And what's interesting is the Bible never tells us to ask the question, how do I know he's chosen me? The Bible tells us to ask the question, do you believe? Do you believe? And if you believe, then you can know that God loves you and that God has chosen you. In the beginning of the Ephesians, Paul says this, he says, for he chose us in Christ. When? Well, before the foundation of the world. Well, what was happening before the foundation of the world? God was just being God in eternity. There was no time. It was just God being God. And in that moment, I want to say, but that wasn't even a moment because there was no time. But in that existence, in that reality, that's when God chose his people. <clears throat> so that's not only a true statement, but it's the only way that it could possibly be because God is unchanging. God is timeless. That means there was never a moment when God began to love his people because if there was ever a time when he didn't love and then there was a time when he started loving, that would mean something within him changed. And since that is impossible, that means if you believe the gospel... There was never a time that God didn't love you. 
Now, there may have been a time where you hadn't yet come to believe the gospel. But if you believe that Jesus lived for you and died for you and rose again for you, then that means he's always known you, he's always loved you, he's always intended to save you because he does not change. And this is how we can always have assurance of God's love. Just like there is nothing we could do to keep the sun from coming up tomorrow, there's nothing we can do to make God stop loving those he's decided to love. Okay? Now here's the question. And this is the question we always end up asking, right? If I know God loves me simply because I believe God's promises, and I believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again, and that he lived and died and rose again for me personally, if I believe that, then I can know that God's love for me will never change. Does that mean it doesn't matter how I live my life? If God's always loved me, and I, and I believe the, the truth of the gospel, then, then regardless of how I live my life, God's always going to love me, right? Well, the answer is no. The very next thing God says to the people through Malachi is this. He says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Wait a minute. Hold the phone. Didn't we just get done saying that God doesn't change? Yes, we said that. Okay. And then we said that there's nothing that we can do to ever make him stop loving us. Yes, that's, that's what we said. So how is it that God's returning to his people could ever be dependent on their returning to him first. Right? Because that makes it seem like he will change based on something that we do. So how is it that God can declare in one verse that he doesn't change, and then in the very next verse say something like, return to me, and then I'll return to you? Isn't that like saying, I will always love you, as long as you always love me? Right? So to understand this, we have to understand the place of repentance in the Christian life. So that word translated return in verse 7, that's the same Hebrew word that is also sometimes translated repent. So in order to have a relationship with God, we must believe that he loves us and has chosen us in Christ, and that's what it is to have faith, and we must repent of our sins. We must return to him in order for him to return to us. Because repentance is necessary for salvation. Now this is where it starts to get complicated. And this is, these are one of the, this is one of the truths that's on my heart to help Christians understand more than anything else. Because repentance, think about salvation as like the structure of a building. Repentance is not the foundation of that structure. Repentance is not the ground of that structure. It's not the basis of that structure. That structure is built on faith and faith alone. Okay? But repentance is the necessary response to faith. So uh, theologians describe faith as the direct act of faith. Okay? So the direct act of faith 
is when we come to accept and know and trust in the promises of God to us in Christ. That's the direct act of faith. We simply rest in the fact that God loves us and has chosen us simply because we believe. And when that happens, we become children of God. And then repentance, repentance is part of the reflex act of faith. So think about it in terms of going to the doctor. He, he hits your knee with the hammer, right? And your, your foot flies up, okay? The direct act is him hitting your knee with the hammer, and the reflex act is your foot flying up, okay? So, so our, our salvation is based on the direct act of faith, but the reflex act of faith necessarily will happen. And here's why this is so important. Our repentance is fickle. It, it just is. There are times when we go through seasons of life where, where we are immersed in our sin, loving it. And if our salvation was based on our repentance, then we could never be assured that God loves us. And because it's based on faith and faith alone and simply resting in what he's done for us in Christ, we can always return to a place of assurance of God's love for us. Yet when we do that, guess what happens? We repent. We repent. We're we're melted by his love. So what is repentance? It's just returning to God. Returning to God is godly sorrow over sin. We return to God when we agree with him about our sin, that it is evil and that he's been nothing but good and patient with us, yet we have rebelled against his holy and good law. We return to God when we are sorrowful. We return to God when we hate our sin and what it costs God, what it costs those we love, what it costs ourselves. Listen to David in Psalm 51. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. So God will never despise the repentant heart. This is how the Westminster Confession, I know this isn't our confession, but I like like it. And it's really good. And they're like our cousins, basically. This is how the Westminster Confession defines repentance. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's a saving grace, which means it's a gift. Whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Notice repentance isn't the new obedience. That's the fruit of repentance. Repentance is simply recognizing that God has loved us and he has chosen us and that and that he's not changing, and that we should be destroyed, and that we haven't been destroyed because he is so kind and so patient and so full of love and grace and mercy for weak sinners. And and when we see that and we, we recognize all that God has done for us and how kind and patient he is with us, our heart is melted and we just turn to him in hatred of that sin and love for him and his immense grace. And this is what God is seeking to stir up in the hearts of his people in our passage this morning. 
He reminds them that he does not change. And for those with true faith, this is comforting because it means he's always loved them and he's always chosen them. And then he reminds them that according to the letter of the law, they should be destroyed, but he hasn't. And this is how Paul puts it in Romans. He says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? See, God is, God is patient with us so that after receiving his promise by faith, we will turn back to him in repentance. He's not patient with us because he's okay with sin. He's not patient with us because he's just decided, hey, I know they're just going to be big sinners their whole life and there's nothing going to be different. He's patient with us and kind with us so that we, through faith, will recognize how much he loves us and we'll respond in repentance and then gratitude. So God says to the people through Malachi, return to me and I will return to you. And then the people respond by asking, well, how are we to return? How are we to repent? And we could take this one of two ways. Either they don't know what they've done wrong, so they're ignorant of their sin. They're saying, well, what are you talking about, God? We're, we're good. We're doing all the right things. Me, you and I, we're, we're, we're good. Or, or, They don't know how to walk away from the sin that they're trapped in. God, how how do I repent? How do I break out of the shackles of this sin? And I think it's probably both. (laughs) Because so many times we're we're one or the other. We're ignorant of our sin, not even recognizing that, that God's law has called us to live a different way. And other times we're very aware of our sin, and yet we're choosing it over and over and over again. Some of us here this morning are stuck in a sin, whether it's anger or gluttony or pride or an addiction, and we know it's wrong, but we just don't know how to return to God. Maybe we don't even feel guilty about it anymore, and we've resigned ourselves to the fact that we're not going to be able to defeat it this side of heaven. And others of us are unaware We're giving ourselves to things that we don't even know that God God wants us to flourish, right? We don't even realize that we're hurting ourselves. And so the question is, how do we return to God? How do we repent? Well, our passage tells us. The first thing we have to know in order to repent is God's law. So that's exactly what God gives his people in the next verse. He says, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? And he says, in your tithes and offerings. And this passage does have much to teach us about giving and generosity. But but we're not going to focus specifically on that this morning because this is not the main point, actually, of this passage. Giving is just an example of one of the many, many ways the Israelites were turning away from God's decree. He's already mentioned sacrifices and unbiblical divorces, and we've looked at those in previous sermons. And now God is using giving here as a clear example of sin in order to convict his people and lead them to repentance. He wants them to see that they have sinned, that they are breaking his decrees, and because of these things, they deserve to be destroyed, but because he does not change, he's not destroyed them. But he is disciplining them. 
In the next verse, he says, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. You see, when we choose to walk in sin, whether ignorantly or knowingly, that is a life that God will not bless. He will not bless a life of greed. He will not bless a life of sexual sin. The people of Malachi's time were struggling with disease and drought. They were, they were still an outpost of the Persian Empire. They didn't have a king on the throne. And they were upset with God because it didn't seem like God was keeping his promises to them. And God wants them to know, look, you are suffering the consequences of your own sin. Proverbs 19.3 A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. Isn't this exactly what we do? We, we sin, whether it's knowingly or not, and then we suffer the consequences of that sin, and then we're angry at God because our life is hard, but God cannot bless a life of sin. In fact, God loves us so much that he will discipline us in our sin so that we will return to him. Now, before I go on, let me just qualify my previous point. Um, sometimes in this life, we suffer. And we suffer at the hands of somebody who has uh, chosen to hurt and harm us. And, and we did nothing to bring that into our life. Other times we suffer just because we live in a fallen world and tragedies happen. So I'm not saying that every time we suffer, God is disciplining us. But, but sometimes when we suffer, God is disciplining us. And we just need to be able to ask the question, God, is this, is this in my life because I, I have sinned? Right? The most obvious thing would be like, I smoked my whole life and now I've got lung cancer. Well, there you go. That's the result of that choice. Other times we just get cancer. And we've done nothing. So God's love transforms us when we see that God has been so patient with us simply because he decided to set his love on us. And we can rest in the love he has for us because we know that he doesn't change. And then God's love transforms us when we see how much he's loved us and how we've sinned against him. And when we see how patient and kind he is toward us in our sin. And that moves us to repent of it and turn back to him. But we see one more way in our passage this morning how his love transforms us and his love transforms us by laying before us the blessings of obedience. God goes on to say, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. See, God has the power to bless us beyond our wildest imagination. And when we're holding on to our sin, what we're really saying is, I believe this thing is going to bless me. I believe this thing is going to give me everything that I long for and everything that I desire. And God is saying, no, that's destroying you. Turn from it. That's bringing consequences in your life that, that I am sovereignly putting there so that you will feel the pain of those consequences, so that you will turn from it. And then now he's saying, 
to walk with me in obedience is where real blessing is found, not as a formula. Some people read this passage. This is a passage that the prosperity gospel preachers use all the time. And they use it as a formula. They say, hey, you give to the church. God's going to pour out blessings on you. And and that's not what's happening here. This This is God saying to people who already have faith. And he's telling them, walk by faith. Trust me. Trust me that when you live according to my commands, that when that when you do life how I have laid out life for you to do in my word, see if I don't pour out blessings on you. Test me, right? The whole thing of, uh, of I believe, help me with my unbelief. One of the ways God's help, God comes to us and helps us in our unbelief is by saying, test me. Walk in obedience. Take your small, feeble faith and apply it toward living how I've called you to live and see if I don't bless you. Another reason the blessings aren't a formula is because the blessings aren't necessarily going to be material wealth. They're not necessarily going to be something that that anyone in this world would want, whether they're a Christian or not. The, The blessings of the New Testament especially are the blessings of just knowing God. The blessing of of knowing him more deeply and, and walking with him more passionately. And let me kind of explain how this works. So, so imagine that, that, that we are someone who is sinning, and, and we know the sin, and, and God's reminded, it of us, of, uh, reminded of us of it several times. And we're sitting here and we're thinking, okay, I, I think I should test him. I think I should walk away from that sin, and I should, I should test him and see, see if he will bless me. Okay? And then we decide, okay, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to walk away from that. And so we do. Guess what happens? We fall right back into it. <laughs> and then we're like, oh man, I tried. I tried to walk away from it. I did. I tried to test God, but it's just so hard. And then we feel the consequences of it again. We're, we're reminded of his love for us and, and we're, we're moved in our heart and melted by his love for us. And we think, why do I keep doing this when God loves me so much? And so then, then we wake up the next day and we think, okay, I'm going to try to walk away from this. And guess what happens? We fall, right, we fall right back into it. And, and so part of what happens when we test him in it is we begin to learn that he loves us. And that even the fact that I'm struggling with this sin cannot keep him from loving me. And then what happens is, is we begin to test him with it and, and then maybe we, we don't fall back into it. And then what happens is we realize like, you know what, I want to walk away from this sin so bad that I'm going I'm to tell somebody that I'm struggling with it so that I can have some accountability. And then we do that, and that's really humbling and hard and difficult and terrible, but so sweet and so good and so full of life. And now all of a sudden, not only are we learning that God by his power and by his love and by his grace is transforming us, but it's all his power. (laughs) It's all his strength. It's all his grace. It's not us. And we're also learning that the depth of his grace to forgive us is beyond our wildest imagination because we thought that if I could just turn from this, then God would be happy with me. And yet I'm, I'm struggling to turn from this, and yet God's happy with me. Why? Because he's happy with me because of what Christ has done for me. And so it's actually in the process of striving to be holy 
that we not only find out that God is more gracious in forgiveness than we ever imagined he would, but that his grace and power to transform us is actually real. Because slowly over time, we're able to walk away from that sin. And we'll pro- maybe we'll struggle with it the rest of our lives. I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> some, some sins that have been characteristic of my nature are the same sins that I've struggled with for years and years and years. And, and that war, that battle and struggling with those things, that is where I, I've come to know God's ra- grace and his love for me more than anything else. The, the, the posture of repentance about those sins day in and day out has been the beautiful, gracious, loving space where God has invited me in to know him like nothing else. And then God says, finally, all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Friends, the greatest testimony to the power of God in this world is a church of people who have come to faith in Christ who are repentant about their sin and who live lives trusting that God's ways are best, never to earn God's favor, but simply because we already have it in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we look at what you've done, sending your son into the world as a baby in a manger, displaying your love for us in Christ, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then as we see that, we experience uh, learning to love you because we love you because you first loved us. And then, Father, we begin to grow in that love and to really truly believe it deep in our soul. And as that happens, Father, not only do we um, rest in it more easily, but we live lives of love for others and for you more authentically. And so we ask, God, that you would descend on this place and show us your love more and more, that we might be a people who, like was just said, people who the nations call blessed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.